0: They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hey, this is Dwyer Brown. I played John Kinsella in the movie Field of Dreams and you're watching the amato podcast hey guys want to have a catch welcome to the negro leagues baseball museum it is the world's only museum dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of african-american baseball and its profound impact on the social advancement of america
0: okay here we are today we're talking to bob kendrick of the negro leagues museum uh Sports obviously can help many people through some hard times. I like to turn on baseball. It takes your mind away from everything. So hopefully this helps a lot of people out today. Uh, Bob is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You've also served as executive director of the National Sports Center for the Disabled in Kansas City, which is awesome. Um, you started a relationship with the museum during his 10-year newspaper career with the Kansas City Star, uh, where he and his department won many of a- awards. Uh, the Negro League Museum is the world's only museum preserving and protecting the history of the uh, African American baseball players and leagues. So, welcome. I appreciate you coming on today.
1: Ryan, thanks for having me, man. Could
0: you could you tell everybody just about the museum who may not know?
1: Well, it's as you mentioned in your lead is the world's only museum dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of African American baseball, and as we like to say. Is profound impact on the social advancement of America. And, and quite frankly, Ryan, I really think it's that latter statement that grabs the hearts, the minds, the imaginations now of the thousands of people who come to see us every year. I believe the work that we've done over the last, wow, we've been at this now for 30 years. And, and so the work that we've done over that time span, I think people come now to the museum expecting to meet some pretty good baseball players. And, and of course, man, you don't leave Not being disappointed, you're going to meet some of the greatest baseball players that ever put on a baseball uniform. But by the time you walk away from that experience, I truly believe that you walk away with an even deeper, richer appreciation for how great this country really is. Because as I tell my guests, the story of the Negro Leagues could have only happened in America. And so even though it's anchored in the ugliness of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history, out of Segregation, Rose, this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And man, it's all based on one small simple principle. You won't let me play with you? Then I'll just create a league of my own. And, and the museum documents this incredible story. And amazingly, Ryan, it is a story that had basically been omitted from the pages of American history books. So countless generations of us Went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And I think that is what grabs folks when they come there. And and we take you on this very nostalgic journey back in time. And, And you get to see how this unfolds. And you get to see the pride and the passion and the perseverance that these incredibly courageous athletes demonstrated in the face of adversity to play the game that they love. And what I say oftentimes is you don't have to be a baseball fan to appreciate Negro Leagues Museum. Because if you are a fan of American history, you're going to love the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. If you are a fan of the underdog overcoming adversity to go on to greatness, you're going to love the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. For man, if you're a baseball fan to boot, you are, as like we say in Georgia, you're in hog heaven. Because you get the best of all of those worlds. And so, you know, I say oftentimes as baseball fans, we were cheated. We should have seen all the great stars be allowed to take the field at the same time. But we introduce you to those unsung heroes, their love of the game, this amazingly successful black business enterprise that was Negro Leagues Baseball. And that is so profound. And a lot of people it is lost on them until they come to the Negro Leagues Museum.
0: So I I was fortunate enough. So I I learned first about the the Negro Leagues because I collected sports memorabilia and uh, baseball cards. And I was so lucky to be able to meet a lot of these players at uh, reunions. And uh, I believe I met, uh, I know, I know, I know I met Buck O'Neill a few times. Um, And I believe it it was at the All-Star Game uh, one year in Philadelphia here um mm-hmm. yep uh many years ago so uh you talked about it in a video i saw when, when we're going to talk about Buck O'Neill later but when you met him uh you know the type of people that just make you feel good yeah. Um, yeah. without really saying much that uh, he was one of those guys and we'll talk about yeah. that later um so everybody knows about jackie robinson he, he you know he was the first player to break the color barrier but there were so many players um before him and that's who we're going to talk about today um could you take us way back and just explain how, how the first league actually started?
1: Yeah, the official Negro National League began here in Kansas City in 1920, which is why we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of the Negro League. They were formed here, Ryan, on February 13, 1920. Andrew Root Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into Kansas City. They met at the old Paseo, YMCA. And out of that meeting came the birth of the Negro National League, the first successful organized Black Baseball League. Now, there had been other failed attempts to do a Negro League, but in 1920, Ruth Foster had the juice. He had the magic. He had the wherewithal to actually get this done. And then the Negro Leagues would go on to operate remarkably for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. And as you can well imagine, that surprises a lot of people because you instantly relate what you had just mentioned, the fact that Jackie Robinson breaks baseball's color barrier in 1947. Yeah, 13 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier, the Negro Leagues are still operating and to some extent operating with a great deal of success. Now, by 1955, Negro Leagues baseball had become minor league at best because by then you had siphoned off so much of that young black talent and there was no replenishing system. And and that is what ultimately led to the leagues to dissolve, but it took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. So the Boston Red Sox would become the last team to integrate in 1959 when they signed a guy by the name of Elijah Pumpsey Green. And and that would complete the integration cycle. By 1960, the Negro League ceased operations because as I mentioned, by then, the best young black stars had moved into the major leagues or into their minor league system, and there was no replenishing system, so the leagues then dissolved. Because I think at one point in time, Negro League owners thought that the major leagues might use them as a pseudo-farm system. But quite frankly, they didn't need them anymore. After they had gotten that great black talent out of there, and now if you were an aspiring young African-American athlete, you can now go right into the major leagues, minor league system. So they didn't need the Negro Leagues anymore. And so essentially it became a fire sale for Negro League owners. You started to sell your star players to try and generate as much as you could before the business of baseball ended. Because it wasn't, the the, and I should say the business of black baseball, because it wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when this was going to happen.
0: When when, uh, Rube Foster started that, his league, Uh, I mean, that's a big, that's a big gamble because you had, um, you know, Jim Crow laws and, uh, how, how did people, um, when, when they would come into town, you know, barnstorming or in the leagues or playing at different parks, how did they accept, uh, everybody?
1: Well, it was always challenging and interesting when they weren't playing in uh, cities where you had high African-American population as they were traveling around the country, uh, particularly in the South and, and even in the East. As they went west, it was as much as more curiosity as it was, you know, this kind of Jim Crow-like situation. Buck O'Neill would say when they go to places like Wyoming or Montana, the place where it had been so infrequent that you ever saw a black person, that a kid might come up to them and rub to see if it was going to come off because they are (laughs) not seen a black person before. You know, obviously, as they were traveling the highways and byways of this country is really where the challenge came in for them. And I think sometimes when we look at the story of the Negro Leagues, the baseball field was their sanctuary. Yeah, it's everything that occurred in between that time. You know, you might play; they were playing in so many major league stadiums, man, where they couldn't even use showers. You know, or you couldn't find a place to eat or have a place to sleep. Those That's where the challenge really came in not the baseball piece of it. Yeah, and I think they were just so passionate about the game that they were willing to deal with those kinds of adversity. But what Ruth was very smart in doing was these teams were anchored in areas that had fairly high black population. And so I don't know if he thought that he would draw a white fan base, which certainly they ultimately did, but he knew he could build his business model based on the population of those areas as it related to African-Americans who were residing in those communities. And he was right on. But the critical thing for Rube, and I think the reason that this had failed in previous attempts, lack of stadiums. Rube finally figured out how they could get access to stadiums. And, and, And see, that's the fundamental difference between the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues, was finances. The Major Leagues were certainly better funded in the Negro Leagues, and they had their own stadiums. There were only a handful of Negro League teams that ultimately would have their own ballpark. You know, you had you had it with the Martin brothers in Memphis, and, and of course, you had it with Gus Greenlee in, in Pittsburgh. The St. Louis Stars had their own ballpark, Stars Park. But that was the exception and not the rule. And, and so, you had to have a blueprint that would allow you to gain this access many of the times, two major league ballparks. And so when I hear people say, where well, the Negro League schedule was haphazard, hazard, it, it, that's really not true. They had to wait on the major league teams to set their schedules before they could then go in and see what dates were available for them to utilize. And, and so as Buck O'Neill would say, by the time their schedule was set, he could leave home and his wife would know exactly where he was going to be. He left home in April. She would know where he was going to be in June. So those schedules were set. Now, did they play a lot of games in between on the way to different places? Of course they did, because they found ways to make more money.
0: So when we're talking big crowds, this this is not, okay. you know, a bunch of guys just going out onto the sand lot and playing for 15, 20 people. We're okay. talking crowds of up to, you know, 50,000 people for, for, yeah. for their all-star, All-Star, games. All-Star
1: and, games. All-star games in Chicago, Toronto, 50,000 people, games in New York. You know, at Yankee Stadium, 40 plus thousand people, you know, it depended on the size of the ballparks here in Kansas City. The stadium that the Monarchs played in was later known as Municipal Stadium. And of course, the Chiefs and Royals and the A's and the old Kansas City Blues, which were the New York Yankees farm team, all played there. Well, before they built the upper deck for football, when the Chiefs came to town, the stadium held, I don't know, about 15,000 people. Well, when the Monarchs played there, It's 17,000 plus standing room only. Yeah. And so, yeah, they they were filling up ballparks all over this country. And they, in many cities, were outdrawing Major League Baseball teams. And, And so, no, that's why I say this was big business. Black owners were making pretty good money from the success of black baseball. The players were making a decent living playing the game that they loved.
0: And we're talking not just African-American players There was, uh, as well. It's included in your museum. We're talking Cuban Cuban players well, yeah, also were involved in the Hispanic,
1: league. Hispanic players by and large. Because the, the beautiful thing about the Negro League, Ryan, right, they didn't care what color you were. All they cared was, can you play? If <laughs> you can play, you can play. And, and, and for me, that is what makes this story so special. Because they refused to treat others the way that they were being treated. And and, and I just think, and I I still marvel at their capacity to see life through those lenses when the exact opposite was happening to them virtually everywhere that they went.
0: And we're also talking, if you look on the other end of that, you're talking about the Major League Baseball owners who um, I I just still can't believe they made a decision to not make their baseball teams better, um, just to keep people out of a different color.
1: Yeah, it's almost impossible for us to fathom, you know, for those of us who are beyond that era of Jim Crow. And it's, but that's the way life was once upon a time in this country. So you can imagine the shock and awe of young people, kids, when they come into the museum and they bear witness to a segregated society for the very first time because they've been removed from those kinds of struggles. Uh But it is vitally important that we allow our children to look back in time if they are to appreciate how far we've come and for us to empower our young people to take us where we still yet need to go in the future. We still have work to do in this country as it relates to race relations as evidenced by some things that we've seen in recent times, you know, uh, in and around race in our society. And and if they're going to be charged with doing that, they have to understand that life hasn't always been as good as it is today for some of its citizens. And so when kids walk into the museum and they get to, to be introduced to segregation, they summarize segregation very simply. That was dumb. And they're right. It, it was indeed dumb, but it was also the way that our country was. And, and, and this growth process that we're still in. And I think when you see these kinds of stories through the lenses of sports in particular, it, it makes something that we already knew was ludicrous. Segregation was ludicrous. And it was a shameful period in this country's history. But when you reduce it to sports, and, and baseball in this case, it makes what we already knew that was ludicrous even more ludicrous than we already knew it to be. You know, and, and they go in and they <clears> see <throat> that you could go to jail for sitting in the wrong section of a ballpark or drinking from the wrong water fountain or using the wrong restroom. It blows them away. But what I, I tell them too, that, that you have to admire is that through all of that social adversity, they never allowed that to kill their love of the game. So if I've got to sleep on the bus and eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. And really, that's the prevailing spirit that you feel when you come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. This is not a woe is mine kind of story. These athletes never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it you won't let me play with you, I create a league of my own. And when you stop to think about it, Ryan, that is the American way. And so even though America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail.
0: And I think it's very important to, to still teach, you said it before, still teach the young people about what had happened. Because you know we don't want to have rose-colored glasses. There's still racism out there now. I I own a a painting company in Pennsylvania, and you would you wouldn't believe. You know, we work with uh, have a lot of Spanish painters, Mm -hmm. and uh, they will you know come across some racism when they go to some jobs, and it's it's unfortunate. Well,
1: Uh, we're still evolving as a society, and, and racism has always been predicated on fear. And I think that's why you love children, because children don't see color. They just see other children. And and it's a shame that that innocence is oftentimes robbed with them. And we know that hate is a learned behavior. We are not born into this world hating anyone. Someone teaches you to hate. And, And unfortunately, there is still hate being taught in our society. But I still subscribe to the belief that the more we know about one another, the easier it is for us to get along with one another. And what we learn is that we have far more in common than we do differences, but our differences are not things that we should be running from. We should be embracing them because those are the things that make us uniquely individual. But in our country from time to time, we have these instances where we run from people who don't look like me, who don't talk like me, (laughs) who may not act like me, who doesn't serve the same religion that I may serve. And that then, in the minds of many, that makes them bad. We've got to move beyond that. And I think uh, our young people are are more than capable of helping us continue to grow as a society. But I do think a story like this, a powerful story like the Negro Leagues, helps in that equation.
0: Could we... I want to talk about Jackie Robinson, and I'm not disparaging Jackie Robinson at all. He's an amazing player. He was an amazing player. He was an amazing person. But he was not the best (laughs) player uh, by far to to be the the first African-American baseball player. Did, Did other players, were they angry at that?
1: Yeah, I don't know if any of them were angry. Satchel was probably a little bit bitter because Satchel was such a big star. And, and in many ways, Satchel was the Negro League's. And here you were taking this relative unknown as it related to baseball, and he's now going to be the guy to break the color barrier. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would imagine that there were a few guys who lamented the fact that they wished this had happened in their prime. Yeah, the older Negro League player who had moved beyond his prime and wasn't able to take advantage of what Robinson had created there's always a little bit of professional jealousy because I think there probably were guys who felt hey man I'm just as good as he is you know why not me but I think the more majority of the players understood the the gravity of this situation that Robinson was about to embark upon and so this was more than just being good now no no this this was about having the fortitude having the mental toughness everything that needed to take place to deal with the social adversity. The baseball playing was just only one aspect. And, and it speaks volumes to how talented Jackie Robinson was that he turned himself into a, a hall of fame caliber baseball player because he was a much better basketball, football track athlete than he was baseball player. So you're absolutely right. There were other League players who were far better baseball players than Jackie Robinson but Jackie Robinson was the right man to be the first because you cannot fail. Failure is not an option because if the first guy fails, there is no second guy. And so we don't know how long it may have been before another black or Hispanic athlete would have gotten that opportunity to play in the major leagues if Jackie fails. And so there's an insurmountable amount of pressure on that first guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Jackie had the makeup, the wherewithal, to deal with both sides of it. And, and so he was the right guy. And that doesn't mean that there weren't others who could have done it. I certainly believe that Monty Irvin could have done it. Monty had the same pedigree as Jackie. And, and quite frankly, Monty was a far better baseball player than Jackie Rock. Monty Irvin was a superstar in the Negro League but Monty had just gotten back from World War II. So Ryan, he was suffering from what they called then, shelf shock. Today we would call it post-traumatic syndrome. And, and he was also having contract squabbles with Effa Manley, who wasn't necessarily a big fan of Branch Rickey. And, and so Monty turned down the opportunity, but Monty Irvin was the owner's choice to be the first. But Monty was college educated as well, He had served in the military. He was married. So he had that same standard and pedigree that Jackie had. So I certainly think Marty Irvin could have done it. Obviously, Larry Doby goes over several weeks after Jackie, and and he had the same pedigree. Now, Doby was a lot more soft-spoken. I think sometimes misinterpreted in the Robinson experiment is that people think that Jackie was quiet or docile or soft. Oh, no, you got the wrong guy. No, no, Jackie was fiercely competitive, and as the late great Buck O'Neill would say, Jackie Robinson could Duke, and he would Duke. He'd knock you on your rump. But, you know, (laughs) he humbled himself for the greater good to do what was necessary, and in doing so, he not only changed the game, he changed our country for the better.
0: Before we get into the players, uh, which I I do want to do, could you tell me, how how did the museum get started, and did you have any struggles at that time?
1: And it's still a challenge, but it's been a (laughs) joyful challenge. It really has. We started, we are as grassroots an organization, right as you will ever encounter. We started this museum in a little one-room office. As I'm looking at the room that you're recording this, it might be two times in the office that we started the Negro Leagues Museum in, in 1990, there at Historic A.P. Divine in the Lincoln Building. And guys like the late great Buck O'Neill and other former Negro leaguers who were still with us at that time, literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep that little office open. And that's how we got started. That was 1990. Here we are 30 years later, recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, as designated so by the United States Congress in 2006. So it's been an amazing journey for a little museum that no one gave any chance of succeeding. And, and when we started this there in historic 18th and Vine, or at historic 18th and Vine in Kansas City, there was nothing there. 18th and Vine, like a lot of urban areas, had been left to die, It had been abandoned. And, and you can look at the demise of the Negro Leagues that triggered the death of so many of those urban communities. You see, wherever you had successful Black baseball, you had thriving Black economies. And Historic 18th and Vine was no exception. It was a cultural crossroads where jazz and baseball intersected. And so it was the epicenter of Black life in Kansas City. Well, a lot of that was bolstered by the success of the great Kansas City Monarch. And, and, and so 18th and Vine had died. And here we are talking about building a museum in an area that was depressed, had been left for abandoned. And even some of our most ardent supporters were questioning, why would you do this? Yeah, who's going to come see it? There's no built-in foot traffic. And thanks to the infinite wisdom of the late, great Buck O'Neill, who was very defiant in the fact that this is where we will build this museum. This is where the Negro Leagues were formed, and we will build this museum here. And when we do, we will resurrect an area that had been once a very proud, prominent area guess what? We've done just that. So it was never a self-serving proposition for the museum. There were certainly better business opportunities for our museum to locate to a more dense area with high foot traffic, but it was never self-serving. It was always about the greater good. And and we're very proud of the fact that we've essentially done for that community what Negro Leagues baseball had done for African-American communities across this country.
0: Do you do you or have you got support from Major League Baseball?
1: Yeah, no, Major League Baseball, particularly over the last 10 years or so, uh, I'd say five, five years or so have been. They've always been supportive, but even more supportive now under the leadership of Commissioner Rob Manfred. And then on the Players Association side with Tony Clark being at the helm. And, and so we've seen a different level of embracement with both arms of the heads of our industry. And, and it's, it's really created a, a welcomed partnership. And I think as the game is really focusing on its inclusiveness, diversity, it was only a natural fit that it would align with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Because in this effort to get urban kids playing baseball again, it's important that they see themselves. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum provides that opportunity for them to understand their place in this game and how this their place helped usher the civil rights movement in this country. And so it has been a wonderful partnership. You know, on February 13th, when we commenced the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues, year long celebration. Of course, Commissioner Manfred and representatives from the Players Association were with us in Kansas City. And of course, we proudly announced a joint $1 million contribution from Major League Baseball and the Players Association. Well, that's the second $1 million contribution the uh, two arms of baseball have provided to the museum over the last three years. So we've seen this elevated growth, and and they've been a wonderful partner. We're excited about our opportunities to continue to partner, and we think we can (laughs) absolutely make an impact in the lives of a lot of young people with this story and this incredible piece of history.
0: Do you think, well, you probably see the the current players sometimes, do they come through? Can they appreciate... Uh, what what these great players have done for them.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it doesn't matter what, what color you are. You can appreciate this because the one fundamental thing that they share with the players from the Negro League, love of the game, man. You play the game because you love it. But as I share with them, you will never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. They had, to en- they had to love it to endure the things that they had to endure. So you see, Ryan, it wasn't uncommon that these athletes could go into a ballpark, fill it up, and yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer them basic services. But they never allowed that to kill the love of the game. And I think every athlete, no matter what sports discipline, can admire and, and appreciate that level of passion for the game. Because no matter what we think, and sometimes we as fans can get a little fickle because we base everything in our society around money. And so we assume the fact that these athletes today are afforded a wonderful opportunity to make a great living that because they make a lot of money, that they don't love the game. No, man, they love the game. They're still playing a game that they played as a kid for free. And if they had to play it today for free, what do you see now? Every player you see talking today can't wait to get back on that baseball field and just play ball again. So, yeah, they love the game. But when they come to the museum, I do think they gain an even greater appreciation for just how good they have it. Because, you know, every now and then I have a coach say, well, my guys were crying about a late night charter flight, a late night charter flight. And and then you walk into the museum and there's this wonderful quote from the legendary Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe that says, every 4th of July, we would play four games in one day. I would pitch two and catch two and sleep 35 minutes in between games. All of a sudden, that late-night charter flight don't seem so bad anymore. And so you do gain a perspective. And I think that is important, too. And, again, they have a natural appreciation because they know how difficult this game is to play. And then all of a sudden, they're meeting these new baseball heroes, and they're hearing these incredible stories of the incredible feats of the likes of the Josh Gibsons and the Satchel Pages and the cool Papa Bells of the world.
0: Awesome. So I, I want to g- just go through a, a bunch of names uh, and just kind of play the name game with you. Uh, a lot of these names people are going to know because they're the popular names, but that, there's a lot of others. Uh, oh, so, many.
1: You know, so. there were so many that played in the Negro Leagues, man. And, and the one thing I keep telling guys, telling folks all the time, they could play. They could absolutely play. The talent in the Negro Leagues would not take a backseat to any league.
0: Exactly. And, it, you know, Josh Gibson is my first one and you know, uh, he was nicknamed the Black Babe Ruth, and we're going to have some other nicknames in there, but uh, it, it, it could have been reversed, right? Babe Ruth could have been... Oh,
1: absolutely, <laughs> because they do that by comparison. Because, you know, you knew everything about the major league, so they want people to gain kind of a comparison, and, and so that's what you'll see. You'll hear guys say, well, Josh Gibson was the Black Babe Ruth, but then you'll hear the counter of that, well, Babe Ruth... Gibson was so good, the people that saw Gibson will say that Ruth was the white Josh Gibson. And and I think what they're trying to do is draw this parallel to let people understand how good these players were from the Negro Leagues by comparing comparing them to a contemporary in the Major League that we know virtually everything about. Gibson was incredible. Gibson was absolutely incredible. And I think you can make a legitimate argument. That he's the greatest combination of power and average this game has ever seen. Because lost in the incredible power is the fact that Josh hit 354 lifetime. Yeah, like a batting average of .354, and in head-to-head competition against major leaguers in countless exhibition games, he hit over 420. And 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 what makes it even more remarkable. He was doing this as a catcher. You know, as you will know, catchers don't do that. No, they don't do that. And so Gibson, I don't know if, if for, my, for, for me, I think Josh is the greatest baseball player of all time. Now, that distinction normally goes to the center fielder because that's that glamour position. That's why you hear the Willie Mazes and the Mickey Mantles and, and in the Negro Leagues, the Oscar Charles of the world because most people have this affinity for the center fielder. That's that glamour defensive position. But what Gibson did as a catcher, and I, I mean he dominated on both sides, on offense and defense, is virtually unheard of. Yeah. And, and so, but he was incredible. I don't know if there's any more myth, lore, or legend surrounding any two athletes than Satchel Page and Josh Gibson. But when you see the images of Gibson, you can see the power in the picture. You can see, you know, this this ain't made up. No, this power is very real. Yeah, I, I mean, I would have just loved to have seen him swing that bat.
0: Who would you have compared him to, a uh, uh, size wise? Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson.
1: If you can imagine Bo Jackson as a catcher, that was Josh Gibson. Wow. You know, about six foot six, one two twenty, ripped, just ripped. Just absolutely ripped with big, powerful forearms, big, powerful thighs, trademark rolled up left sleeve. Brian, the man swung a 40-ounce, 41-inch bat, man. And and he ain't choking up on it. He got it gripped down below the knob. But he was so compact and so quick to the ball. As Buck said, the ball just exploded off his back.
0: Wow. But you you named my second person. You're kind of reading my mind. Oscar Charleston.
1: Yeah. Well, see, that's one of the names that is not as popular in law, because people don't know that much about Oscar Charleston, but Buck O'Neill and many of the old-timers from the Negro Leagues, they say without hesitation that Oscar Charleston was the greatest baseball player ever. Not black baseball player, perfect greatest baseball player The old-timers say that he was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays was. Charleston was the consummate five-tool guy. Hit for power, hit for average, could feel, could run, could throw. In 1921, he led the Negro Leagues in home runs, triples, doubles, stolen bases, and batting average in the same season. And again, for those who will be listening and watching, and if you are a fan of the history of our sport, he was compared to have the defensive abilities of Trish Speaker, the tenacity of Ty Cobb, he was mean, he'd fight you, and the back of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. And my dear friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, says he never saw a center fielder who could go back on a ball the way Charleston could, Said, including me. Said he had uncanny instincts. Just seemed to know where that ball was coming down right off the crack of the bat. He was an explosive player. He got great speed, great power, great arm. There was nothing that Charleston could not do. But he's not that household name. Yeah, he's not that household name. And so that is one that surprises people quite often. He's in center field at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on our field of legends.
0: Awesome. I'm looking down my list right now. And I'm going to get through these names. But at the end of each one, it says Hall of Fame 77, Hall of Fame 2006, <laughs> Hall of Fame 2006, Hall of Fame 87. So, I mean, uh, I- I'm glad they were, uh, uh, you know, recognized that way as well. Yeah. Um, how about Buck Leonard?
1: That's a good name. Most believe the greatest first baseman ever. He was compared to Lou Gehrig. Believed to have greater defensive abilities than Garrick. And the old-timers in the Negro League still say the greatest fastball hitter this sport has ever seen. They say sneaking a fastball past Buck Leonard was like trying to sneak Sunrise past the Rooster. You couldn't do it. He sit dead red and would not miss. He hit over 400 when he was 40 years old. He turned down an opportunity to go to the major leagues because he knew he was too old. He and Josh Gibson formed one of the greatest baseball tandems ever. Yeah, yeah, no. When you start talking about the great one two punches in baseball, that list better have Josh Gibson and Buck Leonard on it because I'm not sure there was a better dynamic duo than Gibson and Leonard. Lightning, as they call
0: it. <laughs> Nine, is it nine <laughs> consecutive championship teams?
1: Yes, yes. That's and, amazing. And, and Buck Leonard was just a true gentleman of the game. You will never find a single Negro Leagues player, dead or alive, who would ever have said a disparaging word about Buck Leonard. He was just a true gentleman of the game and, and one of this game's greatest players.
0: Mm. How about Pop Lloyd?
1: John Henry Pop Lloyd. <laughs> he really revolutionized, I think, the shortstop position. Because he was a big man. Lloyd 6'3", Range, power, soft hand, great arm. Could do it all. Many believe Horner's Wagner to be the greatest shortstop in Major League Baseball history. Well, Wagner said it was a pleasure to be compared to the great John Henry Pop Lloyd. Ruth, of course, is alleged to have called Lloyd the greatest baseball player he had ever seen. Mm-hmm. That's how that's how good Pop Lloyd was.
0: Another shortstop, uh, Willie Diablo Wells.
1: Ozzie Smith. That's <laughs> Ozzie Smith. Think Ozzie Smith before Ozzie Smith making those same kinds of acrobatic plays that the wizard was known to, and but more power than Ozzie. Yeah, more power. Yeah, and, and so he was a special, special player, and tenacious. Now Willie Wells would fight you too. And, and Willie Wells is credited with having invented what we now know to be the batting helmet. Yeah, mm. Wells proud of the plate. He was mean. He was tough. He stand over the plate and a great spitball, spitball pitcher in the Negro League named Bill Bird. Uh They were in the playoffs, and he beamed Willie Wells and, and knocked him unconscious. And, and the doctors had recommended that Wells not come back to play, but you're not going to keep Willie Wells out of the lineup. He comes back with a construction helmet That he had Jimmy Rick and taped on his head, and that essentially becomes the advent for the batting helmet. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he hit 410 in in exhibition games against Major League Baseball.
1: Willie Wells, a flat-out star. How
0: about Turkey Stearns?
1: The Gobbler. Another one of the great nicknames in the Negro Leagues. Got that name because of his unorthodox batting stance and, of course, the way his arms flapped when he ran. But when Satchel Paige says, you are a great hitter, you must be pretty damn good. And Paige considered Turkey Stearns to be one of the Negro League's greatest players and one of its greatest hitters. And Cool Papa Bell was quoted as saying, if Turkey Stearns is not in the Hall of Fame, no one should be in the Hall of Fame.
0: Wow. We talked about Monty Irvin uh, earlier. Just a great player. I mean, he played. He played in the major leagues, obviously. Hall of Fame, uh, nineteen seventy-three. I,
1: I wish, I wish that Major League Baseball had gotten Monty Irvin when he was 20, 21 years old. There was absolutely nothing that Monty Irvin could not do. Yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing. And the great Roberto Clemente idolized Monty Irvin, and it, yeah, Roberto Jr. told me that his father, when Monty Irvin was playing in Puerto Rico, that his father would carry Monty Irvin's uniform to the ballpark. And if you carried the player's uniform, they let you in for free. And that it was Monty Irvin that gave his father his first real baseball glove. And that his father idolized Monty Irvin. And as fate would have it, the two legends would go into the National Baseball Hall of Fame on the same day. Of course, Roberto posthumously, because he had passed away, in that tragic plane accident, helping other people, and his idol, Monty Irving, going to Hall of Fame on the same day.
0: Amazing. It is. How about a name maybe people don't know is Cristobal Toriante?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Cristobal. Cristobal Torriente. Great ball player. Again, another one of the legendary Cuban players that played in the Negro League. And again, C.I. Taylor uh, was quoted as saying, he saw walking down the street and said that that was a player that was a baseball team by himself. <laughs> yes, uh, Yeah, Cristobal could do it all. I mean, he was an outstanding, versatile baseball player. Spent some time here in Kansas City with the great Kansas City Monarchs as well.
0: How about Ray Dandridge? That's a name people should know.
1: I think the greatest third baseman to have never played in the major leagues. Yeah, Dandridge was special. They called him Hooks. They called him Squatty because he had big, wide, bow legs. And his teammates would always tease him that his legs were so bow that a, you could get a tight between his legs, but a baseball would never get between them. He could flat out pick it, man. You know, he played, he made it up to the old Minneapolis Millers, which were the New York Giants' AAA team. And Ray Dandridge was named MVP of the Millers when he was almost 38 years old. But there was no room in the Major leagues for a 38-year-old black third baseman, so he never got that opportunity to fulfill that dream of playing in the Major leagues. And he was a little bitter about it because he was out playing those young kids, but they were never going to take a 38-year-old anybody, but particularly a 38-year-old black man, to take a young white kid's job in that era, so he never got that opportunity. Mm.
0: Another great nickname, you've you've mentioned him a couple times now, Cool Papa Bell.
1: (laughs) I think the greatest nickname in baseball history, maybe one of the greatest nicknames in sports history, Cool Papa was legitimately cool. The name fit his persona, and many believe to be the fastest man to ever play this game. Clocked him, circling the bases from home to home in an amazing 12 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. The, his friend Satchel Paige so famously said that he was so fast, he could walk, out, walk in the room, turn off the lights, get in bed, pull up the covers before the room went dark. But, and, and that is a true story. But I tell my guests, you're at 6 large speed cool Papa Bell. Ryan, he once stole 175 bases in a less than 200-game season. He twice, honest to God's truth, twice, scored from first base on a bunt. In exhibition games against Major League All-Stars.
0: Wow. Here, here is a good stat. Uh, maybe you know who I'm talking about. Hall of Fame '99. He was 20 and seven against the white Major League teams, and he struck out 20 New York Giants in one game. And we're talking about Smoky Joe Williams. I mean, that's amazing.
1: Smokey Joe, well, again, one of the names that not as widespread popular then transition mainstream like cool and satchel and josh smoky joe williams was dominant to dean texas yeah man tall lanky same build as satchel through hard through hard with great control as well though and, and so yeah he was dominant in those exhibition games against major leaguers one of the greatest pitchers, not in negro league history but in baseball history
0: Amazing. And, uh, of course, we want to talk about Satchel Paige. So there's a lot of stories and legends out there, uh, one being his, his age. Yeah, we don't uh, know. We don't know. And even on, on I was looking on, online yesterday, or even on his tombstone, there's no born date. Yeah, no, uh, we
1: got that tombstone in the museum. Oh, okay. yeah, that, that tombstone is actually in the museum. That's his original tombstone. They had thrown that away when they built, when, when, see, when his wife, LaHoma, passed, the Satchel is buried here in Kansas City at Forest Hill Cemetery. Of course, he and Buck both lay at rest in the same cemetery. But when Satchel passed away, and then his wife eventually passed away, they built a monument. The family built a monument, Page Island, there at Forest Hill Cemetery. And so they had actually discarded the old tombstone. And someone brought it to us. And it's a special piece, because you're right, by his birth date, there is a question mark. He literally took it with him to his grave. Now, baseball says he was born July 7, 1906, which I absolutely do not believe. The man that died in Kansas City in 1982 had likely seen 76 a long time ago. You know, many believe that Satchel was probably 10 years older than what he claimed to be.
0: So now that's amazing because he, he supposedly made his major league debut in his 40s. So. 42.
1: Yeah, he was oh. believed to be 42 when he joined the Cleveland Indians in 1948. As a rookie, he and Larry Doby would help the Indians win the World Series. My Indian fans get tired of hearing me say this. It was the last time Cleveland won the World Series. It was 1948 with Satchel and Larry Doby, and many Ryan thought that Satchel should have been named Rookie of the Year. He goes 6-1 with a 2.4 ERA his rookie season at age 42, which means he could have been 52 years old at that time.
0: Amazing. Just amazing. Uh, is there anything else you could tell me about Satchel that, that people may not know?
1: Man, we don't have enough time. <laughs> uh, we could spent the entire show talking about Satchel. But, you know, Satchel, I, I think Buck O'Neill always believed, had Satchel been the first, that he would not have gone through the same level of intense racism that Jackie went through. Because Satchel was a huge star. Satchel Page one of the big stars on the face of the planet at that time. And so many white baseball fans had gone to see Satchel pitch. And so, would he have faced racism? Of course. That was the nature of our time. But I don't know if it would have been as, as, as vile or uh, as it was with Jackie. Um, but it's too great a risk that a pitcher can fail. And, again, the unknown denominator, nobody knew how old he was. And so it was very easy for the other owners to basically dismiss Satchel by saying he's too old. And really only Bill Veck would have given Satchel an opportunity to get there. Because when Satchel signed, when Bill Beck signed Satchel, all the other owners again just kind of demystified. well, that's just Vec being Vec. You know, he's being aloof. And I remember we've got a quote from uh, the publisher of the sporting news, uh, who spent, who said, I mean, he was just really mean-spirited about Bill Vec signing Satchel. You know, basically said, had he been white, you never would have signed it. And Bill Beck's counter was, had Satchel been white, he'd have been in the major league well before <laughs> that. <laughs> that.
0: was a good story. Um, I know you speak very, very fondly of Buck O'Neill, and that's the last player I wanted to talk about. Could you tell me just what he meant to um, to you and to the to the museum, yeah. really?
1: Man, everything, everything. He was my friend, my mentor. My confidant, you know, he was the heart and soul of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He was perhaps the greatest ambassador of this game, black or white. Buck O'Neill just loved the game of baseball, whether he was talking Negro Leagues, Major League, college, international baseball. It didn't matter. He just loved talking baseball and he loved promoting our great game. And I say this with no disrespect to anyone. who have have had a hand in helping build this great museum in Kansas City, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It is the house that Buck built. In New York, you had the house that Ruth built. In Kansas City, we have the house that Buck O'Neill built, and it is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And, And so when we lost Buck in 2006, to use a bad baseball equation, you cannot take your power hitter out of the middle of your lineup and think that you're going to be as offensively effective as you were. You have to find ways now to manufacture some runs. And that's what we've tried to do since we lost O'Buck. But his spirit is still there. As you can well imagine, it's not a single day that goes by that I don't think about my friend Buck O'Neill. I draw strength from his incredible spirit. And, you know, and it's a tremendous honor for me to be carrying on in his footsteps and to have his shadow loom large over me. And I think some people would, I don't know, not necessarily want to carry the weight of Buck's shadow. For me, it is an honor to walk in the shadow of Buck O'Neill. And and I think for our entire team at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, everything that we do is to help predicate the legacy and memory of Buck O'Neill. I don't ever want people to forget Buck. And hopefully, as long as this museum is there, people will not only remember Buck O'Neill, but they'll remember the other 2,600 men and women who called the Negro Leagues home.
0: Bob, you speak very passionately about everything. What, what does this mean to you, like personally? Uh, what are you most proud of?
1: It, it is perhaps the most gratifying thing that I think I could have done. Because in this crazy world of ours, we're, we're such a me society. Everything is about me. You know, how is this going to benefit me? Well, the work that we do, and hopefully if we do it well, it will be there for others to enjoy for years to come. And and again, if you are looking at establishing a legacy, what greater legacy is that than to leave something that others will enjoy? And, And so I think anytime that you do something that you know is bigger than you are, that is very rewarding and for me to do this work. And again, it is very challenging work. It's not easy raising money. And that's one of the principal jobs that I have as one of the caretakers of this great story. But even within the challenges that we have to go through, and that's what I said, you know, while it's been a sometimes tumultuous road in what we've done in building a museum, it's still great joy in that because you know you're doing something that is good. And you know you're doing something that is bigger than you are. And, and again, one day my granddaughter will bring her children by there and say, you know what? Your great-great-grandfather had something to do with this museum. And, and that's what it's all about. Leaving something that will tend, stand the test of time. Or as Buck O'Neill so eloquently talked about, it's rare in this country that we celebrate the people who built the bridge. But at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, that's what we do. We typically celebrate the people who cross over the bridge. But here at the Negro Leagues Museum, we celebrate the bridge builders. And that's important. And he didn't want them to be forgotten. I don't want them to be forgotten. And I hope with the support that we're getting from so many people around the country, particularly in this very difficult time as we're going through this coronavirus scare, that... We will be able, this museum will come out of this just as strong as it was before we went into it. We'll get back to moving to the business of celebrating the 100th anniversary of these Negro Leagues and laying the foundation for this museum to be there for people to enjoy and hopefully be positively impacted by the messages, the transcending messages that are so prevalent as part of the story.
0: How I know the museum is closed now, but how, how can how can people reach out, get more information, help help you out?
1: Yeah, no, we you can follow me on Twitter at NLBM Instagram, the same, same handle, NLBM Of course, we're on the World Wide Web at NLBM.com. Uh-huh. We've got a pitch-in program that we just launched over the last couple of days where we're challenging people while we're closed. To make a contribution of $10 or more, but we're then going to pay it forward. So for every, basically an admission to the museum, and for every admission that we generate through this effort, we're going to pay it forward by allowing students to come to the museum for free. So when we open, And, and so we've gotten a really good response from that kind of grassroots challenge as we try to navigate being shut down, but we're not shut out. We won't be shut out. And I'm excited about that. And again, it gives you great, I mean, it just fills your heart with joy to see so many people respond to this kind of effort that will certainly allow the museum to kind of be healthy and whole when we come out of this coronavirus situation.
0: That's a great idea. So I will put all the links up so people can go find it. Uh, Bob, they have the right person uh, in your place right there, which is you. I mean, boy, I wish if everybody was so passionate about what they did as you are, uh, we would be in a a lot better uh, world. Uh, So,
1: you know, I I tell you, you one thing that Buck would always say, man, he says if if you find a job that you love, you will never work a day in your life. And and again, you know, we have great challenges, and some days are not as good as others. But for by and large, man, the work that we do is so gratifying, and we just appreciate the opportunity to hopefully allow the legacy of the Negro Leagues to play on long after there are no Negro League players left to attest to the story, long after I've passed on, that this story will live on to inspire others.
0: Uh, last question. Are there many players still around?
1: No, we, we guess made about 100 or so. And most of them, Ryan, are what we call the young Negro Leaguers. They're the ones who played at the very tail end of the Negro Leagues. Uh Uh-huh. So it's not a matter of if it's simply a matter of when they're all going to be gone. But their story Mm. should not die when that last Negro League leaves the face of this earth.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll throw all your links up. I appreciate it, Bob. I could talk to you all day because I have uh, probably 50 other players on my (laughs) list, but part two, maybe one day.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I
0: appreciate it.
1: Yeah, man, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you.